0: Uh, Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Leviticus uh, chapter 16 this morning. Uh, Leviticus chapter 16. I was, uh, this, this morning, right before I got up here to preach, I was looking for my timer. I like to have a timer here to let me know what time it is. There's no clock in the back anymore. And I couldn't find it in my seat, so I just thought, well, you know, maybe it's the Lord's will. I just take my time and... Work through it, but then I come up here and it's right here where I left it uh, at the pulpit. So, anyway, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Pete, for that. Amen. <laughs> uh, looking forward to looking at Leviticus with you today, Leviticus chapter 16. Uh, this will be the first of five sermons, uh, this one in the last week of November, and then Uh, our four sermons together, which end on Christmas Day. Uh, We'll have a Sunday service, Christmas Day at 10.30. Uh, That'll be our fifth in the series. Uh, But I'm looking at five Old Testament texts that point the way forward to Jesus and thought it'd be really good for us to take this season, this time after Thanksgiving in preparation to the time when we celebrate Christ's birth to reflect upon Jesus Uh, Think about all the ways he fulfills the scripture, and fulfills the calling of scripture for a complete and perfect sacrifice. And uh, so uh, today we're going to preach from a text, I'm going to preach from a text, that uh, I've never preached from before, but one I've always wanted to talk about, and that's Leviticus chapter 16, uh, which is a record of the Day of Atonement, a prescription that was given uh, to the children of Israel. As we study Leviticus 16, we come to a special day of atonement and cleansing for the people of Israel. Leviticus chapter 16 is an important chapter in the book of Leviticus. It is the central part of the book. Uh, Some scholars think the whole thing is arranged as uh, a chiasm or an axe, and that the center is Leviticus chapter 16. Um, whether you believe that or not, its place in the book is quite obvious, its significance. Um, it is the heart not only of Le- Leviticus itself, but I think it's the heart of the law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. And so it will be a privilege for us to look at these uh, 34 verses here together today. Now, God's covenant with Israel is clearly expressed in a well-known threefold expression. Uh, God revealed his covenant to Israel in many ways in different times. It was always clear, but there's one that sticks out to me. God says, I will be their God, and they will be my people, and my dwelling place will be among them. Perhaps you remember this threefold expression. I will be their God, they will be my people, And my dwelling place will be among them. Yet this familiar expression of God's covenant presents a profound dilemma in its third part. That last phrase. And I will dwell among them. Okay. And the profound dilemma is how can an infinitely holy God dwell among an unholy sinful people how can God dwell in our midst and this is a problem that the scriptures deal with repeatedly throughout how can a holy God live among an unholy people and I think one of the first places that God begins to deal with this is at the end of Exodus in the beginning of Leviticus at the end of Exodus, the tabernacle finished, and Moses is prepared to enter the tabernacle until the cloud of God's glory fills it. Do you remember this? End of Exodus, Exodus chapter 40. You remember what happens after the cloud of glory fills the tabernacle? Let, let me read to you a few verses there. If you're in Leviticus, you could flip over one page to Exodus 40, verse 34 and 35 was in the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle This is basically how Exodus ends God is determined to bless people with his covenant with his presence but how can a holy God live among an unholy people and that men and women is what the book of Leviticus answers That's what the book of Leviticus is all about. Okay, so as you're reading, you'll find the only way a holy God can live among an unholy people from this perspective is that if there were be if there would be sacrifices. Lots and lots of sacrifices, many daily sacrifices where the victim would suffer the transferred consequences of the people's sins. That's what Leviticus 1 through 7 is about, the sacrificial system. Uh, but it requires more than that. If if a holy God is going to live among an unholy people, it will also require priests, mediators between God and man, priests to keep Israel from being extinguished because of our God's holy burning wrath against sin. It will require priests, mediators to keep us from one another in a sense, but to offer us someone in between. And that's what Leviticus 8-10 through 10 are about, the priests. Uh, it would require sacrifices, it would require priests, but then uh, for God to dwell among an unholy people, it would also require rules, right? there got to be rules. Lots and lots of rules about clean and unclean animals, about uh, clean and unclean conditions and diseases and practices. That's what Leviticus 11 through 15 is about. But then we find out that all of those things, ...sacrifices and priests and rules... ...that isn't quite enough. Something else has to happen. And that is true because everything that this people touch... ...they pollute, they ruin. And their sin lingers. It's residual. It pervades and it contaminates. And so, because of the pervasive nature of their sin... A deeper spiritual cleansing of everyone and everything connected to worship in the tabernacle must be performed. A deeper spiritual cleansing of everyone and everything connected to the tabernacle. And that special cleansing is called Yom Kippur. It's called the Day of Atonement. An annual cleansing of the priests, the volunteers, the tabernacle, and the people... ...so that an infinitely holy God can dwell among sinful human beings. The way to God's mercy and continuing presence for Israel was narrow. It was restrictive, but it was possible... ...if they followed the Day of Atonement prescription annually. And of course, this deeper spiritual cleansing points forward for us to Jesus as we prepare our hearts and minds for worshiping him this Christmas season. I want to start with a word of prayer and then we'll take a deeper closer look at the day of atonement how it points to Jesus. Let's pray. Uh, Father I, I thank you for the opportunity to look at Leviticus 16. As I reflect upon the introduction to this sermon, I perhaps have not even done an adequate job to emphasize your absolute holiness. Sometimes I think because of Christ, we're casual when it comes to worshiping you. We're casual and comfortable, and in some sense, rightly so, because His shed blood covers all of our sins, and we're accepted before you. His righteousness is transferred to our account, and. We can rejoice in that. But Lord, as we begin, may we start by trying to grasp how significant this is. A holy God, trice holy, would make a way to dwell among your people. And Lord, I pray that as we do this, you might help us understand this amazing text. I pray to be clear to us. And I pray that, Lord, we would then apply it to our lives as we pursue you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, Moses arranges Leviticus uh, chapter 16 in this narrative description of the Day of Atonement by making the reader immediately aware of some divine warnings in verses 1 through 4. Uh, And so I want to look at those at the beginning here. Look Look with me at the warnings at the beginning of the passage. says, the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into a holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat. He shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and put them on. Okay, so these are the warnings. Passage starts out with a marker to Aaron to cause him to remember what had just occurred. I'm sure he's never forgotten the day that his two sons who were priests themselves, offered a strange fire to the Lord and were killed. They did not properly revere God. They didn't properly worship him. And so God held them accountable. And so in this passage, it starts with that reminder in verses 1 and 1 of the death of Aaron's two sons. And then God makes it clear to Aaron what he should do. He, He must not enter the Holy of Holies except to do so One time a year, one day a year, and then he should follow these instructions very specifically. His warnings or instructions are twofold. What he's supposed to do is first he's supposed to take a bath in water. That's the end of verse 4. And honestly, there's nothing unusual about this practice. Uh, Taking a bath was often prescribed to making someone clean or set apart for an important task in the Old Covenant, and so he's supposed to take a bath, and when he's done with that, he's supposed to put on the proper clothes. He's put, supposed to put on special holy clothes for this particular ritual. Now, this is where things go exactly the opposite of what we might think. Okay, I would think special day of atonement, uh, this is a significant moment, he should put on his very best clothes and come in there and be prepared. But, that's not what happened. If you were to read in the book of Exodus, you would see that... Uh, Aaron had specific high priestly garb. Uh, Exodus calls the, his clothing glorious. It was magnificent. It was splendor, splendid. But he's supposed to put all of that magnificent, glorious clothing aside. And on this day, he is to come in in linen clothes. Linen sash, linen undergarments, and a linen coat. Very simple, humble clothing. Uh, We're not given a specific reason in the text why he exchanges those glorious things for just these simple white linen clothes. Uh, It may be, uh, perhaps, to demonstrate to him that there's nothing significant about Aaron on this day that will do anything. He's supposed to come in very humbly, very simply, very reverently into the presence of God in the tabernacle. Now, following these instructions will protect Aaron... Because God will appear himself in a cloud over the mercy seat that is on the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies. Imagine how uncomfortable Aaron would feel this first day about going into the presence of God. Uh, the only sort of comparison I could think of would be like it, it might be as comfortable as you and I would be in walking into the center of a nuclear power plant. You want me to go in there? This sort of high calling demands warnings... ...and that's how the text starts. It starts with warnings. You, Aaron, do it this way on this day... ...and wear these clothes and function in this way. That gives way to sacrifice. Warnings give way to sacrifice. In my Bible, verses 5 through 19... ...I've written the word sacrifice. So I've got warnings over 1 through 4... ...5 through 19, sacrifice. And here uh, he gives us instructions... Uh, about a sacrifice that's required for the high priest, and then a sacrifice that is required for the people. Okay, So we begin by looking at the sacrifice for the high priest, what I would call residual or lingering sins. I Look at verse 5 through 14. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it that it may be sent into the wilderness to Azazel. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side, and in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Okay, uh, in this passage, we learn about sacrificial victim for Aaron and his family, his immediate family, and for the people, okay? We're going to talk more about the sacrifice for the people, including that whole Azazel section, Okay? So don't get too discouraged. We'll deal with that in a little bit, a little bit later. But now we look at the sacrifice for Aaron and his family, the sacrifice of a bull. Aaron's need is to offer this bull for himself and his family. And that is repeated many times in the text. It's actually repeated five times in two verses. In verses 6 and 11, he's told five times that he must offer this bull for himself and for his family. Um since Aaron functions as a mediator between God and man, and since he is sinful, his own sins must be atoned for first. Okay, You just can't go, no matter who you are, even if you're the high priest, you just can't go in the presence of God bearing sin. And so he must do this for his own self. I, I was thinking, you know, it's at this point in our sermon, if the author of Hebrews were sitting here today, he might interject something, right? What would he say? He said, let me tell you about our great high priest of the new covenant, right? Our great high priest needed no offering for himself since he was completely and utterly sinless, okay? But we'll kind of suppress that for just a second, and we'll come back and we'll talk more about how this text points forward to Jesus, okay, In, in just a little while. Two other features of this sacrifice for Aaron's sin should be observed. First, accompanying his sacrifice is the need to put two handfuls of incense uh, materials on the altar. And while this could perhaps enhance the the mood and the smell, the sweet savor on this day of atonement, we're, we're told the ultimate reason for this, very clearly in the text, the ultimate reason why he's supposed to put this incense on the altar is to protect himself it is to be like a smoke screen of course because a sinful man cannot look on the presence of god and survive okay so this screen of incense smoke is to protect him from the presence of god as he performs this ritual task in the holy of holies now the second thing i'd point out is after killing the bull aaron must take its blood and sprinkle it on the mercy seat over the Ark of the Covenant. The mercy seat is an atoning lid on the top of the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. He's supposed to sprinkle that with the blood seven times. Now this is normal, much more than normal procedures, because I think of the need for complete and thorough cleansing on this day of the sins of Aaron and his household. Now once sacrificed for Aaron's sins, is achieved, he then moves forward with the sin offering of the people. And no doubt, in my opinion, the central focus of the Day of Atonement would be on the two goats that are offered for the people's sins. Okay, and so as we get to this section, we need to pay close attention, okay, to learn, you know, what are the big lessons that the sacrifice or the the offering of two goats for the sins of the people teach. These two central goats I believe, communicate different aspects of the atonement or of the covering of the people's sins that are important. These two goats are two pictures of aspects of atonement, the atonement necessary for fellowship with God. And so we start by looking at the first goat, which is sacrificed for the sins of the people in verse 15. Look there in your Bible. Then he shall kill the goat of, of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of the meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that's before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around and he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. Okay, so Aaron offers the blood of a goat that he's slain for the sins of the people of Israel. And he begins by following the same procedures that he did for his own sins with the bull, but this time it's the blood of a goat. And the end result here in this passage, uh, you can see very clearly in verse 17, at the end of the verse, when we find out that he's made atonement for himself, for his house, and for all of the assembly of Israel. But there's a little bit more in this text, isn't there? He not only makes atonement for all of these people among Israel, he also makes atonement for the holy place itself, verse 16, beginning of that verse, and then for the altar, beginning of verse 18, likely the altar outside of the holy place, just outside of the holy place. At this point in the the story, in, in the narrative description, that we can learn, I think, why this day is necessary. These sacrifices on the Day of Atonement, stress the insufficiency of the daily sacrifices uh, and point forward, the, the daily sacrifices and ordinary occasions of sacrifice, and point forward to the need for something more. Some more like potent blood or something that will purify the holy place itself. In other words, the insufficiency of the daily sacrifices results for the children of Israel in residual sins and defilements. The effects of these sins uh, is overcome then through the more potent blood of the Day of Atonement offering. This place, including the altar, needed an extra dose of cleansing and atonement because the Israelites had brought daily their sins and impurities to the altar all throughout the year. One man said it this way, he said, for the sanctuary to function effectively and for it to continue to abide in the midst of the people, it must be cleansed annually. In a sense, I think what's going on here is that the sins of the people are kind of like seeping into the tabernacle. They're making this regular annual sacrifice necessary. Okay? So, there is the blood of the first goat that's offered on these same places in the holy place and on the altar as a means of atoning, covering the sins of the people and atoning the holy place itself and the altar. Everything seems to be going well at this point in the text, uh, perhaps except for the goat and the bull. But everyone and everything is atoned for. I think this first goat, the sacrificial goat, is a picture that points forward. The sacrificial goat declares that a substitute must die in the place of the people to provide atonement for sin. A substitute must die in the place of the people to provide atonement for sin. That atonement includes cleansing from sin by the blood and propitiation. Big word, right? This sacrifice propitiates. It appeases, satisfies God's holy wrath against sin. That is, if you're putting putting me into a corner, talking about what is the first goat, a picture of what does it prophesy about, It is a picture of the need for cleansing and propitiation or the appeasement of God's wrath through the death of a sacrificial victim. And, of course, that points us to Jesus. But then in verses 20 through 22, he moves along to a second goat. He turns to the subject. He deals more thoroughly with it. And so I invite you to look with me at verse 20. It says, And when he had made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar... He shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. He shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of the man who's in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area and then he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. And so at this point in the text, you know, we're really left with like, what in the world's going on? There's a second goat, and it seems like he gets away. Well, let's let's walk through the passage. Aaron starts here by putting his hands, both of his hands, on the live goat, and and he confesses all the sins of the people of Israel over it. In doing so, he is metaphorically transferring all the people's sins to the goat, which, by the way, as I'm reading this language, it made Isaiah come alive for me today, this week. Isaiah 53, verse 6, And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Speaking, I think, prophetically of Christ. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us at his cross, so that in him we might become the righteous of God. All our sin was put on him. Now, on the Day of Atonement, something unique happens to the second goat. You might refer to it. You got a name for this goat? The scapegoat. wonder where we got that name. Okay, we're going to talk about that. The second goat is sent away into the wilderness under the supervision of a volunteer. Verse 22 explains that the goat will bear away all the iniquities of the people out into a remote area in the wilderness. And then the goat is freed. Okay, now... According to the Babylonian Talmud, the Israelite people changed this up later. Okay, later on, they decided to put a scarlet cord around the neck of the, we'll call him scapegoat for the time being, the scapegoat, and, and lead him out in the wilderness. And then the volunteer was supposed to take a heavy stone and he's supposed to throw both of them over a cliff, both the stone and the goat, as a means of... Securing the fact that he would never come back. Okay, um, Regardless, the idea of this goat is this goat is not a good goat. He's, all the sins of the people have been placed upon him. It, you know, so in a sense, if, if you were to find this goat, you know, I found this goat out in the wilderness, You know, nice little scarlet cord on him, brought him back. That's not a good idea. Don't make a pet out of this goat. He must be forever banished from the camp as a picture that the sins of the people have wandered away in the wilderness forever and ever. But there are three difficult questions I think we need to, to ask or answer here to properly understand this passage and walk away from it. So I've been putting off some of these, but we've got to just deal with them at this point. Okay. First question, difficult question we must deal with is, what does Moses mean when he says this goat is for Azazel? Did you see that in the English copy of the scripture you had? Now, not every translation does it the same, but it's for Azazel. What does that mean? While there's a whole host of ways to deal with it, I think two are likely... uh, Two are better answers. Uh, One is more popular, and then there's one that I hold. So, uh, you know, I don't know which one's better in your eyes, but we'll see. Okay, first. The most popular position today is that Azazel is the name of a demon, or another name for Lucifer, Satan. So this goat is full of sins and iniquities... Uh, and is sent out and given over to Satan or his demon because, well, well, because they deserve it. Here, take all these sins. You like sins? They're yours. They say this because in verse 8, if you look in the middle of the verse, it says that one lot is cast for the Lord and the other lot is cast for Azazel. It seems to be that Azazel is parallel to the Lord. Like being a being or a personality or something. Now, although this view is quite popular, there are significant problems with it. Again, I think this is the one held by most scholars who come to this text, but I think there are reasons to avoid it. For instance, in the very next chapter, offering a sacrifice to goat demons is strictly forbidden. You say, is that really in the Bible? Look at Leviticus 17, verse 7. So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. Okay, so here, very specifically in the law, it forbids offering any sacrifice to goat demons. And that just follows in line with what we know, the Ten Commandments. It forbids idolatry and the the worship of false gods. Now, some object and say that this free goat is not a sacrifice to the demon or to Lucifer, but is a gift. Not a sacrifice, because you never sacrifice to go demons or Satan, but it's a gift to them. You know, terrible gift, but a gift. Sin-laden goat. However, in verse 5, if you look up in verse 5 of chapter 16, God reveals that both goats were to be brought as a sin offering. That is, both goats are offerings, and so I think there's a better way to deal with this. On, on, on the other hand, it seems better to understand Azazel as coming from two words. Okay, here are the two words. Ready, goat and going away. Okay, goat az Azel going away Azazel. This is a traditional way to understand the passage. We're indebted to a man by the name of William Tyndale. You ever heard of him before? William Tyndale produced an English translation of scripture. And he, when he came to this passage, he called it the scapegoat. The goat that escapes. That goes away. In verse 8 then, uh, one lot is for the Lord and the other is for the scapegoat. I know it's not perfectly parallel, but it's quite possible in Hebrew. And it's my preferred translation of this. Okay, so I think... He is indeed talking about the scapegoat, a scapegoat, when he uses the words Azazel over and over again. But secondly, another difficult question we need to deal with, if we're going to understand this passage well, is why is there a need for a second goat if atonement was already provided through the first goat? Okay, and I I really wrestled with that question this week. You know, so Aaron's procedure is to do this. He goes into the tabernacle and he offers a bull, you know and then he puts blood on different things for his own sins and then he does so with the first goat so why is there even a second goat the first goat should have been sufficient for the sins of the people and there are different ways to answer this question it may be just because of all the different trajectories of their own sinfulness and how much it's contaminating in many different ways that just more and more sacrifices are needed or it might be that this second goat that goes into the wilderness will be a visual demonstration for the people. If you think about it, they would not be able to observe the sacrifices in the tabernacle. They're not a lot in there. No one is but Aaron. So they don't necessarily are able to observe what's going on, but this second sacrifice will be a, uh, a visual lesson for them, an object lesson I'm sure they would never forget. That their sins and their guilt would be taken away out in the wilderness never to return. Or, and, and while all these could be true, I think it also could be that there's a, there's a second lesson, a second aspect of atonement that's being emphasized with this. And that leads to this last question about the passage. How does this scapegoat who carries all their sins out to the camp point to Jesus? If the first goat, the sacrificed uh, does so to emphasize the cleansing and the propitiation that is necessary through the death of a substitute, the scapegoat declares the need for a substitute to bear our sins away and carry away the guilt and consequences of our sins so that we can enjoy God. This second goat then points forward to the need for freedom from sin and guilt and the consequences of sins. The first goat declared the need for propitiation. The second goat declares the reality of freedom from sin. And it's only after propitiation, after God's wrath is appeased, that there's freedom. And of course, we know that both of these goats point forward to the act of one man. One act of one man. Jesus Christ upon the cross. Just like the scapegoat who carries away sins, Jesus took all of our sins and our guilt away. So that the author of Scripture could say something like this, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. There was an old children's song we used to sing, some of us. Gone, 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 four of them, right? Yes, my sins are gone. Now my soul is free, and in my heart's a song. Buried in the deepest sea. Yes, that's good enough for me. There's some good theology in that children's song. Gone, 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 gone. Yes, my sins are gone. That's what the scapegoat pictures and that's what Jesus produces. I love 1st Peter I've been thinking about 1st Peter 2. You don't need to turn there over Thanksgiving. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds, we have been healed. Our sin is dealt with. It's gone through the one act of one man. And we don't have to deal with goats anymore. we not got to mess around with goats on Sundays. But the glorious reality is we don't have to deal with my sins anymore either. Romans 8 1 says it so well, doesn't it? There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are finish it in Christ Jesus. So this scapegoat points forward to this amazing act of one man upon the tree who would carry our sins away the guilt and the consequences of those sins from us because of his work on the cross. Some final instructions are given in verses 23 through 34 and we can move quickly through this. Give some final instructions for those who participated directly in the events of the Day of Atonement and then for the people. So look at verse 23. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting, shall take off the linen garment that he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. And he shall bathe his body in water in a holy place and put on his garments and come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar and he, shall let the, the, uh, and he who lets the goat go to Azazel or Azaz scapegoat shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and afterward he may come into the camp. And the bull of the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire and he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and afterward he may come into the camp. Here Moses singles out three people. First Aaron. Aaron should take off his linen garments and take another bath and then he can go out into the camp. The one who leads the goat into the wilderness, the volunteer who took the scapegoat away, Washes his clothes and takes a bath, and then he can come into the camp. And then there's a third volunteer here, a third person, the, the one who burns all the animal remains. He is to do so outside the camp, get rid of the remains of these animals that have been sacrificed. He then should wash his clothes and take a bath as well, and then he can come into the camp. And that leads to final instructions for Israel. Verse 29, I'll keep reading. It says, and it shall be a statute to you forever. That in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement. Wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary. He shall make atonement for the tent of the meeting and for the altar. He shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you. That atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year. Because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. This final paragraph we learn that the Israelites and all the sojourners among them. Are to approach the day in a certain way. They are to rest. This is a Sabbath rest, a time of Sabbath rest for them, and they are to afflict themselves. Okay, now we don't know exactly what that means in this text. It doesn't answer it, but from other texts and like the Psalms, afflicting themselves would likely include mourning and sackcloth and ashes and prayer and fasting. Okay, so we're giving some instructions for the people here. What are they supposed to do on the Day of Atonement while all this other stuff is going on? They're afflicting themselves and they're resting. And then we're told a very interesting thing, an intriguing thing. It says that this day is to be a statute forever for them to participate in. It's large part because of this passage and verses like it that many Jewish people continue to celebrate the Day of Atonement ritual, uh, even to this day. Uh, in Minnesota, we lived uh, not too far away from the Jewish community in St. Louis Park. And they, you know, on Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, you see all these people flooding to the synagogue. House of Worship there. They're doing this because they're told this is a statute forever for them to keep. But for us as believers in Jesus, things are different. I like how one commentator, John Curid, describes this. He says, the festival, the Day of Atonement, receives its eternality in Jesus. See, we, we feel no need to celebrate this annual feast because Jesus entered the holy place once for all, having obtained what kind of redemption for us? you remember that passage? Eternal Redemption. us his one sacrifice fulfills the need for these perpetual sacrifices at the day of atonement and so as i close this sermon we come and we should ask the same question we began with how can an infinitely holy god dwell in the midst of an unholy people And I hope that you, you've seen today that these Day of Atonement sacrifices point us to the ultimate answer to that question. How can an infinitely holy God dwell in the midst of an unholy people? We know that this is only through the sufficient sacrifice of Jesus. This is the grace and peace that we have in Jesus. He cleanses, He propitiates appeases God's wrath on our behalf. And He carries our sins away, providing us freedom. May our brief reflection on this text and the extravagance that we see in the outpouring of grace upon grace upon marvelous grace through the sacrifice of Jesus drive each one of us to praise God. And to seriously contemplate the nature and the need for a Savior to appease the wrath of a holy God. May it drive us then to godliness and to love and good works as we reflect upon what Jesus has done for us. There may be some here today as well who've never believed in the name of Jesus. It could be that some of our young people who've grown up in this church seen other people adhere to, cling to Jesus as their only hope, but yet have never done that themselves. You don't want to run into the presence of a holy God who's wrathful against sin and not be in Jesus Christ. I appeal to you, regardless of age, whether it's a young person or a person who's been coming for some time or a guest for the first time, believe in the name of Jesus and you'll be delivered from your sins. You will experience cleansing, the appeasement of God's wrath, you will experience the carrying away of your sin and guilt. What would prevent you from doing that? Let's pray together. Father, I'm so thankful that we don't have to deal with goats anymore, but more thankful that we don't have to deal with our sins if we are in Jesus. My heart is burdened, Lord, for some who have been here today, have heard this whole sermon on the Day of Atonement and these, all these sacrifices, all this bloodshed. All of this covering and appeasing of your wrath against sin and and would not believe in Jesus. I pray for them today, Lord. I pray that this would be the moment or the time where they would place their faith in Jesus. Lord, then my heart is also stirred for the way we as believers can take this for granted. The cleansing. The fact that our sins are gone. Carried away. Born. By the one who became sin for us. Thank you for the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Thank you for the power of your spirit to raise him from the dead. It offers us salvation if we would believe this good, this good news. Lord, I pray that as we close we might rejoice in the blood of Jesus Christ that covers us from all sin. In Jesus' name, amen.